Our Father, we thank you for today. We give you praise. We worship you for your presence. And we thank you for your hand upon our lives. Thank you for gathering us once again to teach us. Thank you for gathering us once again to speak to us. Father, we pray that as we go into your word, that we have open hearts, that you teach us everything that you want to teach us by yourself and by your spirit. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Today we are continuing with the Romans series. This is part 15. And today we're going to be continuing from the book of Romans chapter 7. The last time we met, the last time we discussed the Romans series, we looked at Romans chapter 7 from verse 1 to 6. And today we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 7 from verse 7 to the end. So, the first thing that we have to remember and the first thing we have to note while speaking about the two-part problem is the simple fact that Christ has already redeemed us from these things. The situations and the scenarios that Paul is describing from verse 7 to verse 25 are scenarios that should not exist in the life of a believer because Christ has already delivered us from this. Like we said, from verse 1 to 6, he had already proffered the solution, which is what? We're no more married to the law. We're no more enslaved to sin. Now we are what? Betrothed to Jesus. But it's still important for us to examine just the depth of what the problem was. Because you would find that, number one, it contains vital lessons for us. And number two, some Christians still fall into this sin consciousness and fall into the second problem excuse me without even knowing that they do so from verse 7 to 12 it says what shall we say then is the law sin god forbid nay i had not known sin but by the law for i had not known lust except the law had said thou shalt not covet but sin taking occasion by the commandments wrought in me all manner of complacence for without the law sin was dead if i was alive without the law once but when the commandment came sin revived and i died and the commandments which was ordained to life i found to be unto death for sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and by it slew me. Wherefore, the law is holy, and the commandments holy, and just, and good. On the surface, it, it, it would look like Paul is giving a defense for the law. It's almost like he has talked about the law being negative for so long that it finally came to a point where he, he assumes, and assumes probably rightly, that his readers would look at the law as an evil thing because he's been talking about the difference between oh you're no more in bondage to the law now you're married to christ you're no more under the law 
now you're betrothed to Jesus Christ. Naturally, it already seems like Paul is painting the law as the villain of the story. So he pivots a bit. He takes another step to speak and say, am I saying now that the law is evil? And he answers his own question. He says, no. Then what is the problem? The problem, he said, is this. That before the law, he had no awareness of sin. That does not mean that sin was not in existence. He just wasn't aware that sin was sin. And that's why he said that in a sense, he was what alive without the law. He's not talking about the life of God. He's not talking about the spirit of God. He was talking about the fact that there was a time, probably a time in his innocence, probably a time before he actually stepped into the pharisaical school and started to and go down the path of becoming a Pharisee and learning about all the laws of Israel and the Jews. A time of innocence and youth. He says, at this time, what? I was alive. Not the life of Christ, but a life that is akin to ignorance. In that, when you do not know that something is sin, it does not register in you that you are committing sin. And as a result, you are not conscious of it. And he ends this part by saying what? What happened was this. If he had not known the law, he would never have known about lust. He said what? If he had not known what? The commandments. He would never have known that what? lost that it was because he knew about what thou shalt not covet that immediately he found out he should not covet his neighbor's household that sin took advantage of that knowledge of covetousness that had been born within him and automatically what started to happen was he began to covet so because he now knows of the existence of covetousness naturally he's pushed towards coveting so he says sin took advantage of the law to work out evil in him because the law left on its own is what is good now i want to say something interesting about sin and god's plan to deal with sin and I want to tell us why the law was incomplete or insufficient in dealing with sin. Regarding sin and the condition of humanity, there are two things that were extremely necessary for man's relationship with God to ever come back to the place that it was, especially after man had already partaken of what? The knowledge of good and evil. At this point in time, sin had to be dealt with in man, in the human condition. And there were two major things that were supposed to happen to sin. The first is that sin was to be exposed. 
sin was to be exposed and that man <clears throat> was to be totally and completely aware of what sin is. But the second thing that was to happen was that man was supposed to be saved from sin. Man was supposed to obtain freedom from sin. First, man should be exposed to what sin is. And two, man should what? Should be saved from sin. The challenge is this. The challenge is that the law is only able to do one of those two jobs. And those two jobs are necessary. And the only thing that the law has capacity to do is to expose sin. However, the law in its state and form does not have the capacity to save man from sin. So the pattern in the Old Testament was that the law would expose the sin. Man would try with his willpower to avoid the sin. And man was sure to make mistakes. So every year, the high priest would go into the temple, to the holies of holies, to offer a sacrifice for everybody, including himself. Because it was impossible for freedom of sin to be attained with the law. But the law could expose it. So the law would expose it, and the priest would go and make atonement. And the next year, the law would expose it again. And the priest would go and what? Make amendment. It was a continuous cycle, year in, year out, until the coming of the one who could what? Save us from sin. And the way he saved us from sin was there had to be a transformation that happened to the law. Two things had to happen to the law for something new to be produced that can save man. Out of what? Out of sin. The first thing we read in the book of what? Matthew 5, 17. And I want us to go there. Matthew 5, 17 says, this was the Beatitudes when Jesus was speaking and giving his famous message. And he says here, he says what? Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. The first thing that had to happen was that the law had to be fulfilled within Jesus. Jesus had to be the embodiment of the law, but not the law as the letter but the law as the spirit the spirit behind the law and i would give examples which is why jesus said what i didn't come to abolish it i came to fulfill it another word you can use for that is i came to perfect it i came to show you what it should be its true form its true nature in that i didn't come to kick it aside i came to show you the heart of god when he was giving you these commandments. The spirit behind what he was saying. And that leads me to the next thing. Which we find in 2 Corinthians 3, 6.
Second Corinthians 3.6 says, Who had made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of what? Of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit gives life. So the second thing that had to happen, the first is that the law had to be fulfilled through Jesus, and the culmination of that was the work he did on the cross. The second thing that had to happen, though, was that man had to start relating with God through a spirit-to-spirit relationship and not a letter relationship through Jesus. And Jesus already started to give crumbs and signs of this when he was on earth. Let me give you a classic example. So, the Sabbath came. And Jesus healed people on the Sabbath day. And the Pharisees came to him. And the Pharisees came to him and told him, and they said to him, that he's breaking the law. And Jesus' argument basically was, I'm not breaking the law. Jesus wasn't saying that the Sabbath should not be kept. Jesus was telling them with the examples and the defenses that he brought forth, I am keeping the Sabbath. I'm not just keeping it the way you're keeping it because you are keeping it with your flesh. You have forgotten the spirit behind what? The law of the Sabbath. That the Sabbath was what? Created for man. Man was not created for the Sabbath. So Jesus came to expose the intention of God to them concerning the Sabbath. He came to tell them that the fact that God said we should rest on the Sabbath does not mean that you will see someone who is lame, who is ill, who is in need, and you have the power to heal the way I have the power to heal that person. And I will not heal that person simply because it is the Sabbath. That mercy can be shown on the Sabbath day because that itself is the will of God. And it is not considered to be work. And when his disciples were going through the field of grain and they plucked hairs of corn to eat because they were hungry and they had not eaten in a while, and the Pharisees approached him, he gave them the example of David, who also did something, in quotes, that was breaking the letter of the law by eating the bread in the temple, which the priest gave unto him because he was hungry. And Jesus said, this happened on the Sabbath day, and in the letter of the law, this is what is wrong. But necessity demanded that the servant of God be given bread to eat. The same way necessity demanded that my disciples eat, because this is not work. What was Jesus saying? The Pharisees, because man, and natural man, lives, lives in what? Absolute corruption. Corruption is what is within us as natural man, right? The Pharisees, in a bid to keep the letter, their own base natures had corrupted the spirit behind God saying what? Observe the Sabbath day and what? Keep it holy. And they had created their own what? Tenants. Created their own, essentially they had created their own thesis of different explanations, different situations, different conditions for which the Sabbath would not be kept, a different things 
in their tens, in their twenties, almost to their hundreds of different scenarios that the children of Israel could find themselves in, in which if they found themselves in these scenarios, they would be what? Breaking the Sabbath. Yet, the Pharisees themselves feasted on the Sabbath day. What are we saying? They had lost the spirit of that law, the purpose by, by which or the purpose for which God gave that law. And because the letter kills, and because they were filled with corruption, it's not their fault, they are corrupt. Because they were natural men, they naturally interpreted that law to suit themselves. And everything that God wanted to achieve with, with that particular law had died. So what did Jesus do? Jesus came and introduced something else. And what Jesus came to introduce at this point, we can't call it the law anymore. It's the thing that we call grace. So when people teach grace, and people say that grace is, some people say, oh, you talk about grace too much. Grace, if you're teaching grace, grace is, you're just giving people an excuse to do whatever they like. People, those people don't understand what grace is. Because to understand what grace is, you have to understand where does grace come from. Grace does not come from something that Jesus abolished. Because Jesus said he didn't come to abolish the law of the prophets. So if you want to define grace, you have to define grace as something that in its incomplete state, the shadow of grace is the law. Because that's the Old Testament. Grace is what? The new covenant. And the new covenant basically states that now we are relating with God with our spirits because the spirit of God is inside us. And the spirit of God is in his word. And God is what? His spirit. So we do not need the letter of the law. What we need is the spirit of the law. So what Jesus is saying is that if you have my spirit inside you, naturally, as long as you follow that spirit, you will not kill, you will not steal, you will not what covet your neighbor's household because you will not need to put it in your head and try to use your own strength to do it. As long as you have my spirit in you, my spirit will naturally guide you into the things of me. And that is the definition of living under grace. There's an aspect of it that talks about the mercy of God. There's an aspect of it that talks about the fact that God doesn't just destroy us when we sin now because he sees the blood. But that's not the entirety of grace. The entirety of grace is that everything that we need is fulfilled inside Jesus Christ. And just like the law was what the Old Testament people needed to be able to live and please God. We don't need the law anymore because the law is fulfilled in Christ. So the person that we need is Christ. And as long as we have him, we can live by his grace. It's not an excuse to do whatever we want. Instead, what it is, is us depending on him to lead us naturally into what God wants without us having to labor. 
to do it by ourselves. So essentially, it's the grace of God manifest through Jesus Christ that now had the ability to save us from sin. But before Jesus came, before the law and the prophets was fulfilled in him, because the law and the prophets was a shadow of him, because everything in the law and prophets spoke of his coming as the fulfillment of God's ultimate plan for our lives. Before that, all they had was the ability to what? To expose sin. But it was impossible for them to be saved from it. And this is the condition that Paul is describing here. Because this condition is the definition of sin consciousness. Being aware of wrongdoing. Being aware of all the wrongs that exist in your life. And not having the ability to do right. And being constantly reminded of your state of depravity. Is sin consciousness. And that's the problem that Paul is describing that he had here. What Paul is saying is, I kind of got in trouble. Because I ended up learning that these things are wrong. And before I learned that these things are wrong, I was, I was fine. In short, for some of them, I didn't even know they existed. I was fine, in a sense. I was alive, in a sense. And all of a sudden, I found out that they were wrong. And once I found out what they were, they became a part of my own reality. The problem is now they are part of my reality. But I am powerless to stop it. I am powerless to stop myself from doing it, now that I know what it is. Because it is in my nature to be corrupt. So the Pharisees found themselves in a position of far power. And they knew. Keep the Sabbath day holy. Do not work on the Sabbath. But because they were corrupt. They could not interpret that law with the spirit behind the law. They had no understanding of what Jesus was saying to them. Because that law had already become an advantage to them. They weren't keeping it the way God wanted them to keep it. They were keeping it for themselves. And Jesus came and said, no. The Sabbath was created for man. Man wasn't created for the Sabbath. God didn't create this as a burden for man. That's not the purpose behind this. And if you check through their lives, particularly in the time of Jesus, when the time of the prophets had long gone, and John the Baptist was probably the only prophet that they had seen in decades, in centuries, time had passed from Malachi, when they had nobody, no, but no singular person that the nation looked up to, and civilization had come in, and the Romans had come in, and the land was not the way it was back then. And after Malachi had passed, there was no national prophet that could come and give them the word of God. All they had was the laws and them trying to follow those laws with their willpower. And because they were corrupt people, they corrupted those laws. 
So when you read through the Bible, you ask yourself some strange questions. For example, they said the woman was caught in adultery and they brought the woman to be stoned and the man was let go. Where was he? Why wasn't he liable to death? Why was death the penalty? If you read through the time of Moses, you would see that essentially when Moses gave these laws, even when there was a death penalty, there was a fairness to it. There was a fairness in the way it was administered because Moses was a prophet of God. Now they want to kill the woman, but they let the man go. Why? They see that zealots are following. A zealot is following Jesus, and a publican is following. I mean, I mean, rather a yes, Matthew, the publican is following Jesus, and they see that Jesus is surrounded by these people, and the state is in the, the state is in a place of political ants because anything can happen because there was a revolt against the Roman government. So what happened on this fateful day? They came and they decided to ask him a question about taxes. Because they knew that if they could trap him to either speak for or against, they had gotten him. It's corruption. Man in his natural state, the more man knows of wrongdoing, it doesn't matter that he knows that thing is wrong, as long as he knows of it. He won't be able to stop himself from doing it. It would sink into his heart or heart and you would ruminate about it. So you want to try it. And that's sin consciousness. And you find a lot of that in the world even today. When people who do not have a genuine experience of salvation just go to church. And you might have experienced it yourself once. Where you read the Ten Commandments, you read all the do's and don'ts of the Bible, but there was no relationship. You had not given your life, and you had not started to live or grow thereby. And you find that what is produced in you instead is sin consciousness. You just know that you are doing the wrong thing. You don't know how to stop. And the more wrong you know, the more you are pushed in the direction of doing those wrong things. And it's even the Bible that might have even revealed some of those wrong things to you. Do you know why? It's because the letter kills. It's the spirit that gives life. Our relationship with God is a spiritual one. And essentially to obey him, our spirits have to be connected with his own. To be able to know that this direction that he's pushing me to, he's definitely going to lead me in the right direction. And depending on my willingness to obey him and to submit to him always, if I can do that, if I can practice that, I don't need to worry about sinning. Naturally, I will never sin. Because I'm giving in to the nature of God through his spirit. And God does not sin.
We're going to go into the second problem. It's a direct, it's a direct offshoot of the first problem. It's a direct progression from the first problem. And we'll read from verse 13. Of Romans. Sorry, I've left there. Romans 7, verse 13 to the end. And the Bible says, Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. What sin that it might appear sin, walking death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. We're still on the same path. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For that which I would, that I do not. But what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then, it is no more than, is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Verse 18. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me. But how to perform that which is good, I find not. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that, I would not. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? I thank God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Amen. The second problem is what I've titled the illusion of effort. The illusion of effort. So when natural man is faced with sin consciousness, there are usually two choices. It eventually leads to one ultimate choice. But there are usually two choices. It's either, and you can look at our generation today, you can look at our world today, and you find that this Two choices have been taken by man in some way. When man is confronted with sin consciousness, it's either A, man accepts that state as the norm, aka, this is how we are, this is how human beings are. That's the first option. When man is confronted with sin consciousness, when man is confronted with the rottenness of his state, the first option that man can take 
is to simply accept and say, well, that's how all human beings are. So you hear some interesting things if you're moving in some circles. You hear that every, everyone does this. Everyone does that. Everyone does this. This is how we are as human beings, you know. Everyone does this. There is a, there's an acceptance that has come with some things. Oh, we all do this. Oh, we all do that. Remember when I used to move in some circles and I used to hear some interesting things. Oh, everyone cheats. It's a normal thing. If you don't cheat emotionally, you cheat physically. That's I mean in romantic relationships now. Oh, everyone cheats. Oh, everyone lies. Like, sometimes you lie to get out of something. Some lies are harmless. You don't do anything. There's an acceptance when man is confronted with sin consciousness. The first reaction is to accept it and simply say, oh yeah, this is how we all are. And to be very honest, I understand that option because I feel like the second option is a lot worse. If those are the only two options, thank God there's a third option. And that third option is Christ. But of the two options I'm about to speak about now, the second one is way worse. Because that's the option that Paul took. So it's either they accept it or they genuinely try to be good. And of course Paul will pick this option because if we remember anything about Paul, we would know that Paul genuinely for the longest time in his life, he thought he was good. When he was with the Pharisees, he genuinely thought he was a good person. When they were stoning Stephen, in his heart he wasn't thinking, oh, I'm doing evil. In his heart he was thinking, yeah, these are the people that are standing against Jehovah, the God of Israel, with this other message they are carrying about. He was a Judaist to the core. So when Stephen was dead, he was like, good riddance. And he took up himself and he said, okay, let's go and find the next one. I hear that there are some in Damascus. Let's be going there. And that's where Jesus found him, on the way there. So Paul, for the longest point in his life, he thought he was a good person. And although we don't see it in all his letters, much of, except when he talked again, I think in Galatians, about his past, we don't really see Paul reflect on his past so much, he might mention it as a testimony. But this part of Romans is one of the most visceral parts of this book because Paul reflects on his past on a very deeply personal level that is very rare to find in most of his other letters because Paul paints a very personal picture that is so real of what it means to go around in circles. All in the name of what? Of trying. So Paul says that he wants to do good. He finds himself doing evil. And he repeats it twice. He repeats it twice in the narrative just to show you or to show whoever is reading just how much of a cycle it is. Because he says it, I want to do good and I do evil. And I find out that as, long, as much as the law of God is in my mind, there's another law walking in my members, in my body. Then you read down and he repeats it again. Revealing what? 
the inner battle that exists in the life of a man who is trying desperately with his own efforts to please God and finding increasingly that he can't. Now, remember he's describing a time where he was a star pupil of one of the best Pharisees, one of the highly rated Pharisees, where on the external, he's one of the best. He's one of the most celebrated Pharisees because he's principled and he's one that is totally and completely dedicated to their cause. And yet, even at that point in his life, even at the point, probably before or during the stoning of Stephen, this was what was going on in Paul's life. That there was still this internal struggle where he was desperately trying with his own power, his own effort, to obey the law and be a good person. And he found that something else was working in his members. And that battle culminated in verse 24 where he said what? O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? And that's the reason why I said the second option for me is worse than the first. Because there are people who have gone through this second option. I have personal examples that I know in my life of people who have tried People who never walked into a real relationship with God, but who had the, the, the structure of religion without being ever taught the truth or being ever brought to a point where they have to enter a relationship with Jesus. They never said that prayer. They never gave their life. They were never born again. But they had the structure of religion all their lives. They had always gone to church. Or they had always gone to mass. Or they had always gone to fellowship all their lives. But they never built that relationship. Some entered the relationship and never built it. And we'll talk about them later. But right now I'm talking about those who never even entered the relationship at all. But they had always been in the system of religion. And they tried and tried and tried and tried and they found that they couldn't do it they found that they couldn't do it they found that the system wasn't working for them because no matter how much they went to mass no matter how much they went to church no matter how much they went to fellowship they could not obey what's inside this book and for some they give up very quickly and just accept that yeah let's just be going to church but this is how human beings are Let's just be going to mass, but this is just how human beings are. There are some things you can't do anything about because this is who we are. While there are others who labor and strive on that yoke of trying to use their own power to do it. And they fail miserably. And if nobody rescues them, if nobody brings Jesus to them in that state, you would find that such people who become bigger antagonists of the gospel 
than those who just give up early. Because they will become so jaded because they had spent so much of their time and their efforts trying to do it and they failed. So like Paul said, he said what? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is verse 25. He says, I thank God And we might not be able to understand the weight of the thanksgiving that he is giving here. But the weight of it is I thank him for delivering me from this from this cycle. For delivering me from making effort. For delivering me from just trying. And try and try. And this is the twofold problem of the natural woman. But like I said, even for the believer, there's still the danger to be sucked into this. And this danger exists for people who have made that decision. They truly made a decision and they've come to Jesus. But they are not building on the relationship. They are not harnessing that grace. And people who don't build this relationship and don't harness this grace would always find themselves falling into patterns of sin consciousness. And they'll find themselves trapped with the illusion of effort. There are Christians who have entered a relationship with God that instead of working on that relationship, instead of working on getting close to this God, Instead of working on getting close to Jesus, instead of working on building a relationship with the Holy Spirit, they'd rather you give them routine and do's and don'ts. Those Christians fail because they would run into the same roadblocks that those that do not know Jesus ran into. Because he has delivered us from the law. And that, like I said, that doesn't mean he came to abolish it. It means he came to fulfill it. He came to be the embodiment of the spirit of the law, which is grace. So that you will not depend on the letter that kills, but on the spirit that gives true life. Can we just open to Titus 3, verse 5? Titus 3, 5 states, Not by works of righteous, righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Number 6, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Let's check Hebrews 10, 
22. Hebrews 10, 22 states, it says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the profession of our faith without wavering. That's verse 23. For he is faithful that promised. As we close today, I want us to remember that when we speak about effort, effort exists in our will. Because essentially effort is you trying to do. Effort exists in the will of man, which is in the soul of man. And it is fueled by the mind. So when I'm talking about not being sucked into the illusion of effort, what I am saying is, rather than trying to do what you think, why not surrender that will to the relationship with Christ so that he can just guide you into what to do? This situation described between verse 7 and verse 23 of, or 25 rather, of Romans, like I said at the beginning, doesn't apply to us. It shouldn't apply to us as believers. But we need to be aware of the dangers. And we also need to be aware of what is going on in the lives of those who don't know Jesus that we know. And whether they realize it or not, they're falling victim to this. Because it's for every man. People have come to accept that this is just how things are. Because the acceptance covers the guilt. It's easier to accept that everybody lies Everybody steals, everybody cheats, everybody does this, everybody does that. That's an easy route out. Because if you accept that there's something wrong there, that puts you in a position where you have to do something about it if you are doing it. And man doesn't want to be confronted with that. Man doesn't want to be conscious of their sin. So when they labor on that sin consciousness for a while, they just accept and that goes away. And that's what the devil wants. The devil wants the whole world to accept the way things are now as status quo. Because that would make the world ripe for him. But those of us who are standing in Christ, who belong to a new covenant, a higher covenant that was purchased with precious blood, that are supposed to be living by grace should make sure that we don't fall into these traps and we should be sensitive to when God is leading us to help some people to come out of these traps because God will lead you to do that in the life of somebody. The next time we're going to, um, in part 16, of the Roman series, 
in a couple of weeks. We're going to step into Romans chapter 8, which is one of the most beautiful chapters in the whole Bible. But for today, I just want us to ruminate. We've been taking this since March 3rd. Today is 29th of September, and we're still on this book. And it's just been a beautiful journey looking at what God has for us in this wonderful book. I want us to rise up and I want us to pray. <clears throat>